With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to Compliance Into the Weeds, the podcast where, with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, we take a deep dive into the weeds of a compliance or compliance-related topic. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network and now on C-Suite Radio. We also now have our own iTunes show, so check us out. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance for another episode. Today, we're going to take a look at the Ericsson FCPA enforcement action, which was announced last week. The uh, FCPA enforcement action itself was a stunning number with uh, just over $1 billion as, as in with a B, billion dollars in fines and penalties assessed, $520 million from the Department of Justice and $540 million from the Securities and Exchange Commission. The uh, amount paid uh, by bri- uh, for bribes was a stunning amount uh, in and of itself with uh, well over hundreds of millions of dollars paid out in bribes. It involved countries from Saudi Arabia, India, excuse me, China, Kuwait, Djibouti, uh, which I had to look up on a map, uh, as well as a couple of other countries. It was a decades-long bribery scheme, uh, but most interestingly, it continued up to 2016. So apparently Erickson did not get the memo of robust FCPA enforcement. It comes in at number two in the all-time list of FCPA enforcement actions behind Petrobras and really is uh, uh, just a stunning case that has long been uh, bedeviling uh, not only the telecom industry, but Ericsson. In terms of credit, Ericsson did not self-disclose. They did not cooperate fully. They did not remediate fully. They did receive a 15% credit under the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, but um, they lost hundreds of millions of dollars because of their recalcitrance uh, after they were notified by the Department of Justice and SEC from an investigation. Uh, Mike Volkoff and I took a look at it really from the DOJ perspective uh, today, or rather earlier in a podcast, but I wanted to maybe visit with Matt to look at the internal control perspective. So Matt, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, first of all, welcome. Where are you today? Yeah. Hi, Tom. So I am down in Washington, D.C. at the AICPA's big annual conference for SEC and PCAOB corporate reporting issues, uh, where there's probably about 1,500 corporate accountants and security lawyers and auditors floating around here, um, mostly talking about good uh, disclosure controls, good internal controls. And that is very timely because that really is what I have been looking at with this Erickson case. You said it was stunning. I would actually use the adjective sprawling because you look at it like, wow, there is something for everybody who touches compliance in any way, shape or form. And I haven't even looked at the DOJ stuff yet. I'm still stuck on the SEC stuff and we could probably go for hours. But but that's what I'm doing here today. 
Well, Matt, I haven't, uh, I've been writing a five-part blog post series on it this week, but I haven't gotten to internal control. So this will be propitious because it will help me write my blog post. So what are you seeing in terms of internal controls that either companies could focus on as lessons learned or failures that you think uh, might lead to strengthening? Yeah, well, the big theme for me that stood out, um, first off, you picked up on this, was how late into the 2010s Erickson was still doing this. And I actually found at least one reference to misconduct. Uh, I think it was a government uh, travel, luxury travel for Saudi officials that happened in 2017. So who, as you said, who didn't get the memo at Ericsson? This is not a small company. They are not unfamiliar with U.S. corporate law. And into the 2010s, they must have known that the FCPA was something that could bite them in the rear end, but we still see this. And then I'm also reading how the internal control provisions were thwarted in some really basic ways. And I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but what stood out to me more than anything else is this is just a big cautionary tale of how difficult it can be for companies for compliance functions, specifically within a large organization, how difficult it can be to govern the use of your third parties, because half of Ericsson was trying to do that and the compliance half was catching up, but they couldn't catch up in time. And there were all of these abuses that should have been detected or prevented and they weren't because par- portions of Ericsson were still evading internal controls and policies and getting these suspicious payments executed and out the door. Um, so that's where I wanted to focus. And I actually thought that uh, as much as we might love Djibouti, which I think is in Africa and Indonesia and Vietnam and the rest, the tales specifically around Saudi Arabia were really instructive. And that's where I wanted to focus my talk. So I'm going to dive into that. Um, the bribery around there, at least in the SEC's complaint, uh, that happened. It started in 2012, 2013. Ericsson funneled $40 million to two Saudi Arabian business consultants, um, pretty much so that they could funnel some of that money to a state-owned telecom company in Saudi Arabia. Um, two senior Ericsson executives, uh, they signed the contracts with these consultants, and they, like, they had to have known this was sham, or they could not have cared less about the gigantic red flags around these consultants. Um, For example, the contracts with both of the consultants described (coughs) identical services to be rendered. Um, The first consultant had only one employee other than the firm's owners. The firm itself had only one client, and that client was Ericsson. Uh, The second consultant claimed to be a Saudi Arabian firm, yet for some mysterious reason, the payments had to go to a bank account in the Channel Islands. Um, then we get into this state, this funded, this, um, company paid state, uh, let me start all over again. Um, we get into this, uh, Ericsson paying for travel for state officials here. Uh, in 2016, the company had dropped $70,000 to fly one Saudi official and seven of his or her family members to a five week vacation in California. Some others were flown to Paris and all of this. So that's the the misconduct that happened. And I got to say, that has to be demoralizing for compliance officers. Maybe if you had done this in 2004, when nobody really knew what the FCPA was about, 
Could we say, all right, this is unfortunate, but it happens? Maybe. This was like happening in 2016, 2017. That is just a drag for compliance officers when you have to think about this is what you're up against. We've been talking about this for 15 years. We're blue in the face and still executives are trying to thwart you and evade your compliance policies. And they're still succeeding, at least in Ericsson. Um, But if you drill into some of these issues, you can see where the internal control failures happened and how a compliance department might try to get ahead. So that's that was next on my list. Um, For example, let's go back to those two contracts with identical descriptions of services rendered. That's something a contract management system could figure out. That is something a good contract management system would be able to detect. Except that implies your company actually has a contract management system. And it is one sophisticated enough that it can analyze the text of these contracts, which means these contracts exist in digital form and not just on paper which was one trick that Ericsson apparently was trying to use was that there were no electronic copies for some contracts. They only existed in physical paper form. So you couldn't be able to search them. Um, And do you actually have the right tech to bring sophisticated analytics to these contracts and figure out this is unusual because that technology exists. I am not talking about whiz bang brainiac science of the 22nd century that is available today, but Does your company have the will and the resources to implement those sort of things? Um, The other one that I loved, which was that when Ericsson did perform due diligence on these two Saudi consultants, um, it did do that, but it only did it one year after the contracts was signed with these consultants. And in fact, the very first Saudi consulting firm, the one with only one employee, that did not even get created until a year after the contract was signed with this consulting firm. So clearly, if you were automating your due diligence, if you were bringing sophisticated analytics, you could line up the dates for all of this. You could find out this is all sketchy. And ultimately, I'm sure that all came to light because we're reading about it in the SEC's complaint. But compliance didn't have the authority to get that sort of thing done before the contract was signed, before the payments were going out. And again, that's something we could do. So the SAP and Oracle are certainly, you can configure them to block payments, to block new contracts, unless compliance concerns like due diligence have already been addressed. You can embed all of that right into your financial processes and your payment systems if you want. And still, I hear on a regular basis from compliance officers who say, I can't get the finance function to let me do that. I can't let my I can't have the authority to block a payment to a high risk third party until due diligence is already done. That should be a no brainer. And I hear still from very large companies, compliance officers saying, I can't get that done. There's no reason why you can't code up your SAP to get that done, except people aren't interested in getting it done. That's not a failure of technology. That's a failure of people. And that that's stuck out at me more than anything else. Because when you go back to what I said, what does this case really tell us about internal controls? It really tells us that governing your third parties is a persistent, ongoing challenge. But really, when you get down to it, a lot of the challenge is just because other parts of the business don't want to integrate compliance concerns into where the money goes, into how we select vendors. That comes afterwards, not before. And that's wrong. 
That should be the other way around that we can get compliance in before these things happen. And we're not doing it. Um, so in that sense, like I can't say I'm that surprised when you read through how Ericsson was treating its compliance concerns. Why should we be shocked that this stuff was happening? And why should we be shocked that it happened far too long and for far too late, given how big it was and how Ericsson should have known? that it was doing something wrong. And clearly it did because they got whacked with such a gigantic corporate penalty. But, um, you know, there's really, there's no excuse, but there are a lot of lessons that you can learn about how to engineer compliance and your financial processes and your internal controls. If you read the facts of this case closely, um, but I'll stop now because I've been rambling for what, 10, 10 minutes here, but that's what stands out uh, to me so far. So, and for those, um, I'll just say the bribe payments in Saudi Arabia were over 40 million. And when I said there were hundreds of millions of bribes paid in China alone, 50 million in Djibouti, uh, 20 million in Indonesia, 45 million in Vietnam, 4.8 million. Kuwait was a paltry 450,000 and then another 40 million in Saudi Arabia. So these were massive payments that they were running through this. Uh, being married to someone who does SAP integrations for a living. Uh, I know absolutely that SAP can handle this. It's a specific uh, bolt-on to SAP. You can put a hold on uh, anything that doesn't uh, meet or uh, meter uh, control or actually have someone double-check on it. So uh, the technology is there. I wonder if at some point the Department of Justice or Securities and Exchange Commission would would actually sanction a company for for failing to engage in this basic technology that's been available, uh, certainly uh, for SAP and Oracle and perhaps some other um, ERP systems as well. The um, other thing that uh, struck me beyond Saudi Arabia, Matt, was the, uh, the length to which the local business units went to hide their sham contracts, fraudulent third parties, and illegal payments from the corporate office. So we had uh, not only mischaracterization of payments, but in uh, some countries, Djibouti and in China, we had what were labeled as fake contracts, sham contracts, and and sham service agreements. Um, And even in Djibouti, there was a fake due diligence report created. So uh, that's about as an intentional act as you can get when you create a fake intel, excuse me, fake due diligence report to get a third party through a process that clearly exists. That certainly does suggest, you know, that when there's willful intent, I think compliance officers should always be prepared for the idea that no matter how hard you try to prevent this, it's going to fail. Um, on the other hand, that does say that there is a, a flip side to this. A note that I had jotted down is that analytics is great for detecting the aberrant event, payment, vendor, transaction, whatever. It's very good for detecting it after it has happened. Um, Then you get into questions of what do we do about it and should we self-disclose? And now we're off into criminal issues here Then I'll leave for another day. Um, But really, there's a lot that you need to think about of how do we figure out the right policies and then embed them into our operations and internal controls to prevent this, um, which is where really you're going to live and die on things because I see a steady stream of SEC enforcement actions around the FCPA where you know the, the prevention just is not there. 
and the payments keep on getting through. And it's more about embedding policies. It's embedding the corporate will. Um, I would give a, a example of what I mean here. I mentioned this before on at least one occasion in this vast empire of misconduct, uh, the company hid part of the sham contracts by having them exist as paper contracts only. Well, if you want to play hardball, you could just implement a policy that's saying that all contracts must be an electronic version for them to be consummated and period worldwide, everywhere. Just leave it at that. Um, and then they all have to be filtered into a centralized system. And then you can do all your analytics and everything else. Um, and, you know, try and send the message that we don't tolerate any attempt to evade the long reach of our internal control system. Uh, Tom, you made one other point that I wanted to mention and catch up on. Would we ever see the Justice Department or the SEC or other regulators issue a sanction around failure to adopt technology that would let you catch all of these things and have a more robust compliance program? As soon as you said that, my first thought was, we've already seen that message sent from OFAC on sanctions compliance. And earlier this summer, they published that long, really very good guidance about effective sanctions compliance. And they did address that you need to make sure that your screening technology works well and works properly if you want to have an effective compliance program. And they have sanctioned firms in the past for having sloppy application of their screening technology. Now, that's only OFAC and it's only sanctions, but the precedent is there. And we should all maybe stop and reflect that, geez, if it's there for the first time, would we see a similar idea somewhere else? And as the technology gets better and better to address a lot of these internal controls, I keep thinking sooner or later, we will see somebody get a rap on the knuckles for basically not using the tech as good as you can. And the better it gets, the easier it is going to be to use and the easier it will be to say, you know, really, why didn't you use the tech? I wouldn't be surprised if we see something like that sooner or later. Well, Matt, uh, one thing this case does provide as um, as pedestrian as the bribery schemes were, and having looked at them all now, they were pedestrian. There's still uh, quite a number of lessons to be learned. And I really like your focus on the technology angle. And I think that could be a continued discussion uh, that we have going forward. So I look forward to seeing what we can jointly come up with on this. All right, Tom. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. I'm blogging every week, uh, excuse me, every day this week on the Erics in case. So check out my blogs. Um, on this case. Mike Volkoff and I took a look at it from the DOJ perspective in the most recent episode of Why a Duck, so check that out if you want to hear from the DOJ side of things. I hope you'll join Matt and I again next week where we take up another topic of interest in the compliance or compliance-related arena. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.